Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. As the Cold War came to an end, President Bush Sr. defined his election bid in terms of the war on drugs. It was said that there was no longer a Soviet foe to grapple with. Instead, illegal narcotics posed an existential threat to the American people. Yet as it turns out, the war on drugs had been going for much longer than this, and you can trace it back to the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, the country's first drug enforcement agency. I'm your host, James Rogers. This is the Warfare Podcast. And in today's episode, I'm joined by Matt Pemberton, who takes us back almost a 100 years to the origins of America's violent global war on drugs, its battle against paramilitaries, and its struggle to contain addiction. Hi, Matt. Welcome to the History Hit Warfare podcast. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Not a problem at all. Where are you speaking to us from in the world? I am here in the Washington, D.C. region. In the seat of power where drug policy and counter-narcotics are created, where strategies are devised. This is what you work on on a day-to-day basis, isn't it? It is in my scholarly life, yeah. Well, I'm excited to get into this history. I've been wanting to get into the history of the war on drugs for a very long time. And and I suppose when I would conceptualise this in my head, the history would perhaps involve looking at George Bush Sr. and his war on drugs, that election-winning promise to the American people that he would take on this war and this mantle and defeat the drug cartels in the war on drugs. Of course, he was later sidetracked by Saddam Hussein and uh, invasions of Kuwait and violations of sovereignty, but that was his core principle. And you know what? I might have even gone back to maybe Reagan or Nixon, but I would have drawn the line there until I came across your work, where we go back far, far further in terms of the American experience of the war on drugs. So tell us, Matt, where should we start? Yes. Well, first, thanks for uh, picking up my book, Containing Addiction, the Federal Bureau of Narcotics and the Origins of America's Global Drug War, available at fine retailers now. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, that's a great lead in. The war on drugs exists in this sort of like weird headspace, at least here in the United States and, you know, to a large extent globally, where it's something that kind of seems like it's been with us forever. And when you look at it, it sort of goes back even further than, than most people imagine. 
You could go back to George Bush Sr. He certainly presided over one of the largest escalations of the drug war in all of U.S. or global history. You could go back to Reagan, you know, and at that point, that would make it about, you know, 40 years old or so. Or you could push it back to Nixon. That makes it about 50 going on 60 years old. But when you look at all these moments, you find that none of these policies kind of emerged into a vacuum. The war on drugs goes back much, much further. And in fact, this becomes one of the central questions in my book is when does the war on drugs actually begin? Well, you're leaving us with a cliffhanger there, but I'm going to ask you explicitly, where does it begin, Matt? Where should we take this back? Is it after the Second World War? Were there efforts to tackle drugs before the First World War? Was this linked even earlier in terms of combating prohibition and trying to enforce that? Where should we start? Sure. I think one of the biggest and most important jumps that we can make is to think about the war on drugs, not as sort of one conflict, but as a series of interrelated conflicts. And it kind of unfolds in these really distinct chapters. You could reasonably push it back to the very beginning of the 20th century when the very first federal drug control laws were introduced. Prohibition kind of fits within the rubric of the war on drugs to some degree. But what's kind of tricky about all of this is that it's a little bit of a stretch to argue that the U.S. government was actively waging war on either drug traffickers or sort of drug using citizens at those stages. But a lot of those elements really do come together in the years following World War II with the rise of the national security state. And a a lot of threads kind of come together. On the domestic front, the United States starts really cracking down on drug use and introduces the first mandatory minimum sentencing laws in the early 1950s. Overseas, the United States first begins to send drug agents to sort of patrol the growing empire a little bit and to try to make cases sort of up the supply chain in places like Turkey and Italy and France, eventually in places like Southeast Asia as well. So for me, I think the 1950s is when a lot of the elements really seem to come together that both on the global stage and domestically, but it it lacks that tidy declaration of, you know, a president standing up at a podium and saying, we declare war on drugs. And if we look back to that period, do we have a dedicated organization that's formed to coordinate all of this and to create tactics and strategies to eliminate narcotics, much like the DEA today, I guess? Yeah. So, and that's the central subject of my book is the nation's first drug enforcement agency, an agency that was called the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. And they exist from 1930 to 1968 and are sort of the institutional grandparent of the modern drug enforcement administration. So who was in charge of this? Who founded this? Whose idea was this? Well, the name that most people would associate with the Federal Bureau of Narcotics is a gentleman by the name of Harry J. Anslinger. And to the extent that people know who Anslinger is, it's typically out of the sort of reefer madness stuff and the really uh, hyperbolic propaganda around marijuana in the 1930s. But in those accounts, Anslinger comes across as this like zealot, very outspoken racist and a real true believer. All those things are kind of true. But when you look at him a little bit more closely, you find that he's a a really canny bureaucratic player, that he's one of the longest tenured civil servants in U.S. history, that in the world of law enforcement, he's second only to J. Edgar Hoover in terms of the length of his career that he served under five different presidents. And it takes a really canny bureaucrat to survive that long. And it allowed him to really put a pretty dramatic and decisive imprint on American drug policy. 
So take us through that a little bit. Are we talking solely about a war on marijuana supplies here? And if so, what sort of tactics, what sort of policies were put in place to combat this? And I'd also be interested to hear why marijuana was deemed to be such a threat to US national security, I'd guess. <laughs> that one is a bit of a riddle, right? So there are a couple of things I would say in response to that. You know, the, the drug war kind of unfolds in stages and in different chapters, and each chapter or stage or cycle tends to have a different drug that animates it. For the most part, for most of the 20th century, we're talking about heroin. And marijuana is actually a bit of a sideshow to heroin. One of the ironies of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics sort of having this reputation as being really zealous about marijuana is that it was actually a distraction from the heroin cases because it's, it's much more difficult to enforce. It's produced domestically, unlike heroin. It could grow everywhere, like in vacant lots. So there wasn't a sort of tidy way of tracking supplies. And the Bureau actually fought against taking on responsibility for marijuana before it sort of turned around and, and embraced it. And the reason it did that is because marijuana was really useful for buttressing anti-drug sentiment. They were really trying to stigmatize all forms of drug use outside of a relatively narrowly prescribed medical context. And this, of course, is also setting aside alcohol, which, you know, the, the country was coming out of prohibition at this time. It, the government had thrown up its hands on the futility of enforcing alcohol prohibition. And it was sort of trying to keep that logic intact when it came to narcotics, you know, with quotes around it, because narcotics was very loosely defined as basically anything not prescribed by a doctor, that the technical definition for narcotics is anything that numbs pain and induces sleep. But often cocaine and marijuana were often lumped in as narcotics as well. But the real enemy is heroin. And the Bureau is pretty explicit about that. They will often come out and say public enemy number one is heroin, language that would later be adopted by Nixon. And the short version of how Anslinger imprints his worldview on the drug war is that he takes these older conceptions of addiction that evolved in the early 20th century, that addiction is basically a product of a deviant mind or upbringing. And there's this sort of a, a little bit of an open question about the sort of chicken and egg of it, of like whether people are drawn to narcotics because they are already sort of criminal or they are driven into criminality because of their drug use, that they never sort of resolve that. But it's in a way, it's more convenient to kind of leave it ambiguous, that they can just lump whole categories of people into this deviancy model. Parallel or above that, there's also this concept of medical addiction, and it's coded pretty obviously in socioeconomic terms, that people that were well-to-do and white become medical addicts, and everyone that falls outside of that narrow framework are deviants and criminals. So Anslinger takes this idea of addiction and he says, well, there's nothing that we can do about deviancy, you know, and mental illness. So the only way to eliminate the drug problem is to control the supply, to make sure that all of these deviants and problem people who are running around in, in society. And by this, we can, you know, minorities, people who are racial minorities, ethnic minorities, people who have politically outside the mainstream views, anyone fit into this rubric. The only way that you can prevent these people from being exposed to drugs is to go out into the world and control the supply. And this worldview begins to emerge over the 20s, 30s, and 40s, but there's not a lot that the United States can actually do about it. There are a series of international treaties that are negotiated, but the U.S. basically has to just rely on sort of moral suasion and trying to persuade nations to cooperate and control drugs, and it's, it's not very successful. But World War II 
completely changes the equation. And as the United States begins to liberate former colonial territories, particularly in the Far East, they begin to impose these new controls over them and make it actually a sort of precondition of liberating these former colonial territories that they would outlaw opium production. So by the time you come out of World War II, Thailand, which was never occupied during World War II, is the only country in the world that still has a legal opium industry. At this point, the United States begins to have the juice because of its geopolitical rise. And it can then start to pressure countries into allowing foreign agents. Um, many of these detectives get their formative professional experience over the 30s and 40s investigating organized crime. At that point, organized crime had a distinct ethnic quality, whether that's Chinese or Italian or Greek or Jewish. So the agents turned out to be really adept at going undercover and penetrating these networks. And they were essentially the only organization in the United States that had this capability. Remember that going into World War II, the United States has no official intelligence agency. So this crop of FBN agents basically train up a huge cadre of the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, which would eventually become the CIA. So they train up this whole generation of American spies, many of whom would go on to lead the CIA. And then they themselves go out and deploy around the world. And as they're doing this, Anslinger begins to get this taste of what it would be like to have agents overseas reporting back firsthand on local conditions and starting to kind of look into the drug scene in all of these different places. And there are all these great dispatches from places like Lebanon and Syria and Turkey and India, where the agents are reporting on the local drug traffic and saying like, oh, it would be great if we could stay here. There's so much work to do. That's sort of the way all this comes together and takes us into the 1950s when the Bureau is able to pressure some of the countries in Europe and the Middle East to begin accepting agents, which I'll pause because that's its own, <laughs> its own story as well. Yeah. And I want to take you back ever so slightly because this idea of America being the world's police officer, the global policeman, it almost seems to stem back a little bit to this point you're talking about back home in the United States. There are divisions based on religion, race and class, which are almost defined, if not exacerbated by the drug problem in the United States. That's how it's defined. And so to, to remedy this division, to defeat the drug cartels, you have to go international. You have to head out. You need an expeditionary force to combat this abroad, to protect that social fabric of the United States. And it's truly fascinating that you say that a lot of this started to be achieved after the US becomes a, a superpower, a victorious nation after the Second World War, and is able to dictate to nations that it is liberating what their future policies should be. Do we know whether or not this was spoken about during the war in terms of American policy, in terms of wartime objectives, or is this something that only emerged afterwards as a happy and convenient coincidence? Yeah, that's a great question. So the Bureau had been pursuing a strategy like this from its conception, from 1930. And the sort of realization that you could never just control it domestically, that it was an inherently transnational, international issue is there in the 1920s with, and, and teens with some of the very first international drug control treaties. But the United States just like lacked 
the geopolitical heft that, you know, this was a period when the United States was intensely, ostensibly isolationist over the 1930s when it was trying to sort of mind its own business that is overstated quite a bit. But, you know, still, it wasn't engaged. It had no capacity to enforce its will overseas. So this policy, this sort of strategy just kind of sat there until the United States had the the stature to really begin to enforce its will. And of course, the ability, the, the extent to which you could enforce its will is debatable, right? That one of the things that we have to sort of reckon with in all of this is the power of the United States, right? And how it perceives its own power and how we perceive its power. And often it's overstated in all of those cases. So where does the US first deploy its personnel? And how do US policymakers convince sovereign nation states to let US law enforcement personnel to, well, do their nation's job on their own soil? That question is one of the sort of central ones that took me into this research and into writing the book. I was interested in the rise of the national security state, and I was particularly interested in like the margins of national security and the non-military aspects of it. And I came across these stories of these early narcotics agents operating in places like Istanbul and Rome, and I began to look more into it. And that was one of the central questions of like, how in the world are these American cops halfway around the world? How are they able to do this? And what kind of questions does that raise for like state to state diplomacy and sort of like person to person diplomacy? And you know, how were they able to negotiate all of these different fault lines? So there are a couple of stories that are useful. One, to sort of go back a little bit to your question about like, how is this strategy percolating? The leaders of World War II, FDR, Eisenhower, Marshall, had bigger fish to fry than drug policy. So they weren't really thinking about this stuff during World War II. But the Bureau was strategically sort of placed and had the ear of the right people that they had this stuff on the shelf and kind of ready to go. And there's this fascinating episode that kind of brings it all together in 1948. So the Bureau are able to send out one of their star agents, a guy by the name of George Hunter White. And he is tracing the flow of heroin into the United States. And he traces it back to its source in Turkey, where a lot of the opium supply is being produced. And without a great deal of preparation or sort of pre-visit diplomacy, they just kind of send him to Turkey. And he starts running around the city. And he like goes and knocks at the U.S. consulate. He's like, hey, I'm here. I'm doing this. And they're like, mm, go slow. And what he basically does is he starts going to all these bars and kind of like flashing money around and asking about like where to buy drugs. And he just sort of like stumbles through happenstance through a couple of different encounters. And eventually the consulate sort of link him up with the local Turkish police who give him this guy who will be his guide basically like a stool pigeon. This guy was a sacrificial lamb. And he sets up this buy, this undercover drug buy. He buys something like, I think he buys six kilos of heroin for like $3,000 from these two local peddlers. And it's this whole to-do where he's supposed to like smash a window and signal all these cops who are outside pretending to be postmen and laborers. And it all goes like a little sideways and eventually they all run in and save him. And it's this big drug bust. In the United States, this gets blown up into immediate headlines by the AP that are, you know, George White is, is Agent White is telling the reporters that this is, I just took a million dollars worth of narcotics off the streets and from $6,000 to a million dollars, right? The Turks are furious. 
that they're getting this kind of press and it'll actually be a decade before they allow another agent to conduct an investigation in Turkey. But the public perception part, the way that the story is sold is actually key to the whole thing. And there's this sort of like bizarre willing it into existence that's going on because even before White has left for this trip, which is in June of 1948, The Bureau are already making this movie that is called To the Ends of the Earth. And it comes out in February of 1948. And it's based on these old cases from like the early 40s. And the protagonist is based very clearly on George White. And Anslinger films a cameo in the beginning of the movie. And it's about this morally flexible cop who's having these globe-trotting adventures around the world and doing good by getting drugs off the street, et cetera, and, and encountering all these like shady foreign traffickers who are clearly villains. And Anslinger is really involved in the promos for this, and he's giving lots of interviews for it. And he says at one point, he tells the reporter that there are no national boundaries in our work. You can't afford national sovereignty when you're trying to break up the narcotics racket. So that's in February of 1948. And then like four months later, you've got Agent White literally like flashing his American badge at these Turkish citizens, making it a reality and then blowing that up into a million dollar bust overseas. So that's sort of like the public veneer, right? That it's going really, really well. And then behind the curtain, the Turkish government is furious and they are able to keep the bureau out for like a decade, aside from like a couple of really brief visits. And and. Because they've managed to anger this host country, it's already kind of set back their grand strategy of going to the source. So they're locked out of Turkey, which is where all the opium is being produced. So they have to kind of shift their focus and pick up the smuggling routes. And that is what takes the Bureau into Italy and Rome in 1951 and into this story of the Bureau's relationship with Charles Lucky Luciano, which is probably another good place to pause because that'll launch us off on a whole other story. Did Edison really take credit for things he didn't invent? Were treadmills originally a form of corporal punishment? And would man have ever got to the moon without the bra? You can expect answers to all these questions and more in the brand new podcast from history hit, patented History of Inventions. Join me, Dallas Campbell, as I uncover what really sparked history's most impactful ideas. Each episode, I'll be recruiting the help of experts, scientists, historians, and even a few real-life inventors. Subscribe to Patented History of Inventions wherever you listen to your podcasts. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. 
so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This sounds like it treads us ever so tentatively into mafia territory. Is that what I'm getting into here, Matt? Because don't feel like you have to stop for us. We want to hear about the mafia links to this. Yeah, that does take us directly into the mafia. You know, there are all these sort of conspiracies that swirl around the drug war. And a lot of these are things that I was interested in exploring and seeing if there was evidence for things like the sort of the CIA facilitating the global drug traffic, the CIA crack conspiracy and, and freeway Ricky Ross being one of like the most obvious sort of examples of that. And if you trace that thread far enough back, you get to the CIA cooperating with the mafia and the drug traffic. So I was really interested in exploring that and seeing how much the FBN and the mafia were working together. And the answer is like maybe a little bit, but there's no records for it and certainly not on any kind of grand scale. But that takes us to Lucky Luciano. And this is probably one of the the biggest sort of stories for the mafia and for the Bureau, some sort of setup. The Bureau were actually the first, one of the first law enforcement agencies to officially recognize the mafia. The Federal Bureau of Investigation, the FBI, famously sort of downplayed the existence of the mafia for a long time because Hoover was kind of afraid to admit that organized crime could exist on that sort of scale. The Bureau sort of see that as a weakness and actually use it as an opportunity to kind of steal a march on the FBI. And they're like, oh, no, we've been talking about this all along since the 1930s. So Luciano. So Luciano's career is is fascinating. He sort of rises through the ranks in the 1920s and 1930s in Manhattan. And he's part of this younger sort of generation of organized crime that kind of overthrow the older caste that's that's sort of more intensely ethnic in orientation. And it becomes a more corporate style of organized crime. This is um, Luciano and Lansky and setting up a commission. So Luciano is sort of like the kingpin figure, one of the kingpin figures in 1930s Manhattan. And he is eventually prosecuted for presiding over the nation of the city's sex trafficking ring. And he goes to jail on that. Tom Dewey is a special prosecutor and is able to sort of get him on this with some somewhat specious testimony. But it works. And it's actually the first time one of these big mob figures has been put in jail for anything other than tax evasion. So Luciano goes to jail in 1936, and he's basically sitting there for a decade. And then here, again, is one of those moments where all these different threads come together that in 1946, he comes up for parole. And now Tom Dewey is the governor of New York, and he's got this, he sees this note in Luciano's file that Luciano may have cooperated with naval intelligence during the war. 
and by the way, he's up for deportation. And Dewey reckons that, okay, better that we sent him back to Italy than we continue to have like the taxpayers foot the bill for his stay in a New York prison cell. So they deport him. The story of Luciano's cooperation with naval intelligence is a sort of long and complicated one. The short version is that naval intelligence was worried about Nazi saboteurs in the Manhattan waterfront. And to be able to operate on the Manhattan waterfront meant that you had to at least have the mafia who controlled it, like not up in your grill every day. So they sort of like ran permission for the naval intelligence officers to be hanging out at the docks, like kind of ran that up the mafia food chain for approval, which went to Luciano in a prison cell. And he was able to arrange for some small favors. He like got moved from one prison in upstate New York, Danamora, to a closer one in Albany and got like a slightly nicer cell, I think. And that was kind of the extent of that cooperation. So he's free in 1946. And you know, right after the war ends, the Bureau begins making this push for the importance of global enforcement and foreign enforcement. And then Luciano immediately, you know, they, they say, oh, there's this guy who's free. We know that he was involved in narcotics before. The public recognizes Luciano as an important mob figure. So this guy is, is now, you know, the lord of the Atlantic heroin trade. And it's they're projecting a lot onto Luciano. But he immediately shows up then in Havana, Cuba in 1946, in one of these big mob summits where they're talking about the gambling industry in Cuba and also trying to organize the post-war heroin traffic. So that's like working in the Bureau's favor and kind of building this momentum. They arrange to have him deported from Cuba back to Italy and then are able to send some agents to kind of follow up on that work. And what happens is that like, after the failure of George White's investigations in Istanbul, they then like refocus on Luciano in Italy. And for about 18 months, they have a hand, they have like two or three agents shadowing Luciano in Italy and trying desperately to find any kind of connection to the drug trade. What they're able to find eventually is that Italy at this time actually has a legal heroin industry, that heroin was still legal, heroin being the street drug for diacetylmorphine, which is basically just more powerful morphine. So it's a legitimate drug used in Italian medical practice. And what they find is that there's this shady veterinarian company diverting legally manufactured heroin into black market channels. And they are able to tie this to like a handful of Luciano associates. And again, over the course of like 18 months of investigation, what they're basically able to prove is that Luciano is a guy who could take a cut and introduce, you know, could get three or four people together in a room for a taste, for a tribute. But he was not himself directly involved because he's an international pariah and extremely hot. They take this and then they go back to the United States again, where they're able to kind of sell this story of mafia drug trafficking. And this becomes the seed of this enormous series of congressional hearings and investigations that, again, take place over the course of like 18, another 18 months, two years, led by Estes Kefauver, which was like this traveling roadshow about political corruption and organized crime and you know, a whole host of associated issues of which drugs were only one, but the agents served as the investigators for this hearing. So they got to set the agenda and take on starring roles. And they were able to use all this to like, again, shape the perception of organized crime, shape the perception of drugs, 
And in all of it, it's that drugs are a product of foreign villains and that this is something that is being done to the United States and that we need these sort of extrajudicial, extraterritorial authorities to be able to go abroad and fight the drug war in order to protect the United States at home. This sounds like it takes money and it's going to take a lot more material and potentially weapons as well. So is it at this point that we start to see the Bureau shift from good old-fashioned policing and detective work to being more of a paramilitary setup? No, you would think, but no. And that's one of the, the answer is no. And one of the, the fascinating things in all of this is that they were able to do all of this on like a shoestring budget. And that Anslinger, again, sort of testimony to his bureaucratic abilities, realized that he had to keep his appropriations at a relatively modest level. That if he could do this on the cheap, You know, he could make an argument for like, we need a modest investment to get 100 agents overseas. You know, we don't need a million dollars extra. I forget what the actual appropriations levels were for the Bureau, but they kept it pretty low as a bureaucratic survival strategy. And again, remember, there's a guy who who went through five different presidential administrations and every incoming presidential administration is going to take a look at the books and be like, what can we get rid of? So, yeah, no. But like what they were able to do is use... A little bit of that sort of like American mythology uh, and use modest investments and equipment and sort of gestures of goodwill to ingratiate themselves with police departments all around the world. This is taking place at sort of the national level, like between like national police forces, but also at like the municipal level of like the local Istanbul detective squad. And they would show up with like cartons of cigarettes and be like, here, sergeant, whatever in Rome, like, here's a carton of cigarettes. Why don't you introduce me to some of your informants? Later, they would get sort of advanced navigation equipment. At one point they got, I think they arranged for an Italian police squad to get like a helicopter, which they then used to go chase cigarette smugglers, you know, not even heroin smugglers. So like they could... Spread this stuff around. They could give them blackjacks. They could give them, you know, handcuffs. I think in Lebanon, they got them like an early copy machine uh, to help set their filing system up. So like there were little gestures like that, but this isn't anything like the drug war that we think of in the 80s and 90s with like Reagan and Bush, where they're just like showering money and guns onto foreign police forces that it was it was really controlled. It was about small gestures of goodwill. And perhaps most importantly, it was about training, that they would sort of train up these sort of rising police officials so that they could cultivate them. Sometimes they would bring them back to the United States. Other times it was just like hands-on training, like this is how we do it in the United States. And that was how they would sort of ingratiate themselves and build these like one-on-one relationships that actually were kind of the key to their success because There was no bilateral framework to be allowing them to do this in an official way. It was like, I'm buddies with this Italian cop or this French cop or this Turkish cop. And it's our cooperation that allow the agents to operate in that foreign soil. Now, I'm very aware that this starts to, I mean, keep the drug lingo going. I mean, this starts to really surge on steroids at some point soon, where you start to see the militarization of of the drug war you've got the attack helicopters and you've got troops being sent in behind so-called enemy lines to take out kingpins but one thing i've got to ask you here is when these police officers are stationed all around the world they are 
a a key part of not only drug enforcement, but potentially also having other diplomatic roles or ties. Are they utilised by the US government in any other ways? Or are they really just this group of police who are able to do what they wish at any point around the world with relatively light oversight? Yes and no. There was essentially no oversight. But they did, and their primary focus was on drugs. But they recognized that they had to make themselves useful. So they often would pass intelligence to the Central Intelligence Agency. They would make introductions. They were often made an effort to be on good terms with the ambassador in whatever country they were stationed in and sort of use those relationships to help the ambassador get situated. In Rome, they were particularly close with Claire Booth Luce. She was the ambassador to Italy for a while. They were very consciously like not diplomats and they would be sort of reprimanded if they were becoming sort of like too diplomatic and being part of the diplomatic scene. But they weren't intelligence officials or agents, even though they would sort of do favors for their sister agencies. They were really focused largely on drugs. Yeah. So when does this start to become more of a military operation? When does this start getting professionalized in terms of a, a almost a combat force, Matt? Great question. So what's distinctive about the FBN is that they played an enormous role in shaping the narrative of a drug war. And their version of the drug war was like quasi-paramilitary, but it was almost more like an intelligence service kind of war. And it was more akin to like counterterrorism today, where it was about building an investigation, sort of infiltrating networks and working out like a sort of picture of an organization and then trying to take out the leadership of that organization. And it wasn't about a ground war, that they had a pretty light footprint, that there were never more than like a couple of dozen agents operating overseas, even at the end of the Bureau's tenure. The militarization really begins a bit with Nixon. Nixon kind of introduces militarization on the domestic front with the introduction of like no-knock police raids and some of these other practices that were really problematic. And it's really under Reagan and under H.W. Bush that the drug war becomes fully militarized in like a more conventional sense of it, right? You know, this is one of the things that you wrestle with in the history of the war on drugs is that like the war part has been a metaphor, largely a very persuasive metaphor. But it's not that metaphoric when like the LAPD are driving a tank through the front of a stash house in L.A. or when the DEA are flying around in foreign countries in Black Hawk helicopters. You know, so it both is and isn't a metaphor. And all that takes place largely 70s, 80s and 90s. But it's enabled because of the narrative that the FBN helped to create. Now, this is the Warfare Podcast. So we're going to draw on your expertise a little bit here and your vast amounts of research you've done into this to take us into perhaps some of these operations that have stood out for you the most. You talk about these these Black Hawk helicopters and, and the violence that comes along with this. What operations are the keystones that stand out for you that really mark this period and define this period of time? Yeah, that's. I, I wish I could answer that better. You know, there have been a number of highly militarized campaigns, um, particularly in South and Central America under the DEA in the 90s and early 2000s. Those things happened and, and it's real and there are devastating consequences from that. 
But one of the challenges, you know, I'm a historian. And one of the challenges for a historian is that we need records. And one of the challenges in this area is that there are no records. There are basically no publicly available records for the Drug Enforcement Administration. That their early filing system is not great. They have, my understanding is that they have deposited records with the National Archives and Records Administration, the agency here in the United States that's responsible for keeping track of, of public records but none of them are available to the public. So everything that I would be sharing with you is already part of the sort of open source research and public record that anybody could look up. I don't have those sort of like deeper insights of looking at what, you know, one DEA official said to another about the true purpose or, or success of any particular operation that I can share. And that's a problem. And it's an impediment to really understanding the sort of the modern history of the drug war is that there are not a lot of official records. You know, even at the presidential record, it takes so long for things to reach the public record that, you know, we're just getting our hands on things from like the Nixon and Reagan years. So we don't have a full accounting. Well, all that means, Matt, is that you've got an entire career ahead of you to investigate all of these things, to put in your freedom of information requests and to get back on this podcast to tell us about the whole new history of these operations that is yet to come in in volume two, three, four, five and six of your book. Now, I've got one final question for you. It's safe to say that the war on drugs hasn't been entirely successful. There are major drug issues in the US today. So what do you think worked or works in terms of the war on drugs? And what are the legacies that we can still see all around us? So first, I'll confine myself to the Bureau of Narcotics. The FBN was very successful at shaping a public narrative and sort of capturing the imagination of American policymakers, that they were sort of describing the drug war in terms that resonated with the geopolitical structure, that it was about the United States had to sort of be able to act upon the world. It had to be able to reach out and enforce its will anywhere around the world in order to make the United States safe at home. So that really like meshed well with sort of Cold War thinking, with the rise of the national security state. And they were really successful at sort of riding that wave and making sure that drugs and the drug war were kind of at the heart of things and at central to those things, even if they weren't always like, you know, took a backseat to like military conflict that it was they were at the table. In terms of like the practical success of the drug war and utter failure in terms of our ability to actually stop drugs from entering the country, which they would admit in moments of candor um, that they would say, we can't arrest our way out of this problem. We can never stop drugs from coming into the port of New York City. You know, in that way, it was an utter failure. And the Bureau's ability to sell the story of drugs as a sort of foreign menace or, you know, as a criminal problem, it locked us into this framework that takes us into the escalation of the Reagan and Bush years and into the present. Um, and now sort of stepping back to assess this larger history, I think one of the greatest harms and consequences of the war on drugs is that it made us, it made the United States, made American policymaking myopic. The, if drugs is a problem of criminality, then it's just about pursuing those criminal networks. But, you know, while the DEA was like all in on Mexico and Colombia, we missed the threat of the opioid crisis, right? That nobody saw that coming because it came from legal industry. And it's now inarguably the worst drug crisis in all of American history. And it's my contention that we overlooked it and we did not see that threat coming 
because we were so focused on criminal actors and on foreign bad guys and unwilling to look at the structural problems within the United States that breed recurrent drug crisis. The, the drug war has functioned largely to kind of like let the United States off the hook for problems like inequality and racism and a very poor mental health system, a poor, you know, health, public health system. It's a way to sort of blame all of these problems on a foreign bad guy on something that is external to the United States. Or, you know, if it's internal, it's a problem of crime, that they're not like everyday Americans. They're evil actors, they're criminals. You know, that the problem isn't capitalism, it's bad guys. Well, Matt, thank you so much for your time, for taking us through this history step by step from prior to the Second World War all the way through the 20th century and straight up to today. Now, tell us, what is the title of the book and where can we buy it? Yeah, thanks so much for having me, James. The title of the book is Containing Addiction, the Federal Bureau of Narcotics and the Origins of America's Global Drug War, and it is available from the University of Massachusetts Press. Thanks so much, Matt. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. Remember to subscribe so you can access our original cutting-edge military histories each week, twice a week, every week. And if you think there's a history we need to cover, or you want to share your own family histories, then email us directly on warfare at historyhit.com. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hip. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.